Greetings, everyone. It's me, Ted Matrakis, back with another episode of the Daily Dialectic Podcast. And today I wanted to talk about two things. Uh, someone asked me to talk about style, so I wanted to talk a bit about that first. Uh, then I'm going to get into a big thing about patriotism and materialism and history, um, because I think understanding that can help explain what's going on, uh, especially with the um, attack on the Capitol last month. But in general with our politics right now. I think uh, patriotism is playing a big role. And so as materialists, which is what I am and what you probably are if you're listening to this, um, I think we need a way to try to understand what patriotism is, how it differs from materialism, and how we can contextualize it. So first about style. Um, Style I think of as collective identity, the identity that we all share in common. We can sort of see ourselves manifested together in the material aesthetic uh, aspects of the environment, of who we all are together as people. Um, And I think it's pretty obvious that we don't really have that much at all now. Like you look around any place, really, and it feels kind of uh, the same. Like what's the difference between most cities in America at this point? Like it's hard to tell if you're, you know... Um, here or there, if you're in Cincinnati or Dayton or whatever, it's like, what's the fucking difference? Um, so I think one of the reasons for this evacuation of style from the environment um, is that identity has become more individualized and so style has become lost because there's no identity left for us to have in common. And again, I think style is collective identity. So as identity becomes something that's just about you, it's this endless sort of journey into the self, um, there's less available to have in common. So one of the philosophers I like who talks about this is a guy named Franco Berardi. He goes by Bifo Berardi. Um, He's written a lot of really good books. One book he wrote a couple years ago, it's called Futurability. Um, And so he talks a bit about identity there. He says, identity is the opposite of style. Identity, quote, is inherently limiting of the possibility of comprehension and interaction. So he's saying that identity cannot be communicated or understood, really, which makes it an odd fit for politics, because politics is about achieving a kind of understanding to build a base, to build kind of popular support. Um, so it's strange to have that to have identity be such a big part of politics, but it makes sense for ruling class politics because the ruling class doesn't want to uh, have things be communicated or understood, really. It just wants power. Um, And so I think this is another aspect of the utopianism of neoliberalism. And in many ways, neoliberalism is a utopian ideology. Um, One of the main ways is that, you know, it's it's based on this belief that you can uh, cut taxes on corporations and the rich, and that will somehow make life better for everyone else. It's crazy. Um, George H.W. Bush you know, a piece of shit, but he was right when he called it voodoo economics. It's utopian. Um, And I think another aspect of the utopianism of neoliberalism can be seen here, um, that having something that is by definition incommunicable, identity, as the basis of your politics could build some kind of coherent mass base or some kind of sustainable uh, politics that can win. So I think that's clearly not the case. Um, So style, quoting from Bifo again, has no normative feature and implies no interdiction or punishment. So style has nothing to do with domestication or discipline. 
Its popular appeal lies in its ability to advance the realm of the possible and broaden horizons, and it makes no use of punishment or even norms. So as our society and culture has become more focused on punishment and restriction and clamping down on free expression, style has vanished. Style is inherently popular, which is why neoliberalism has none of it, Uh, progressive neoliberalism especially. So that kind of media, those kinds of journalists, those kinds of politicians, those kinds of artists generally have none of the kind of integrity that goes with authentic style. They tend to be halting, measured, and qualified, always lacking perspective. They don't really speak well or say anything memorable uh, because they have no style. Style is dynamic. It carries its own momentum within it. It's inherent possibility. Style comes from somewhere and it's headed somewhere. Style comes from a perspective, from a point of view. But the progressive neoliberal mind cannot ever quite come to a point. It's not really coming from anywhere. It's always sinking deeper into the self. And so it can't really ever get out of the self. And so it's boring, right? The perspective of a style is what can lead to liberation rather than the constrictions of identity. Identity goes along with empowerment. It empowers you by trapping you inside your identity even more while style can liberate you from your own identity. What is identity? I'd say it's perspective without a style. We shouldn't listen to an identity. We shouldn't listen to people just because of what their identity is. We should listen to someone who has a perspective, someone who has something to say. So just because you have an identity doesn't mean you have anything to say. doesn't mean you have like a story or whatever. And all we ever hear about is, you know, sharing stories. Um, we should, we should listen to someone who has a perspective, on the other hand. A perspective is an identity with something to say that can point somewhere beyond itself, whereas identity kind of always just leads to itself. A perspective has the freedom of style. It has been free to go somewhere, and so it can point somewhere beyond itself. That's what's exciting and interesting, interesting about good style. It's the life of freedom and possibility, while an identity can only point to itself. So I think this is one reason why uh, politics and art feel so claustrophobic and repetitive now. Like with politics, as in art, um, it seems like, you know, it's the same thing repeating over and over again. We have Biden as the president. He was the vice president for a long time. He's been, you know, a big part of Washington, D.C. forever. Um, And it seemed like there was no choice other than him, really. And it's very claustrophobic because we know that Biden's not really going to do anything too different from Obama. So it's repetitive and there's very little possibility. And I think we see the same thing in art now. You know, art is just, you know, Avengers 6, Avengers 10, Marvel movies, everyone's talked about this. Um, But there's a sameness to art in all kinds of ways, writing style, visual style. um, It's the same, it's claustrophobic. And I think everyone's sick of it, just like everyone's sick of this kind of repetitive claustrophobic politics. Um, Because I think politics and art now are both so much coming from a place of identity. And it's so much about just empowering identity, reifying identity. It's not about transcending identity or pointing towards something beyond identity. It's not about a perspective or a style that opens up a world. And I think one of the most striking things about art now is that it's so bad at building a world. You can't really lose yourself in art anymore uh, like you used to be able to. Um, Okay. Next topic History, patriotism, and materialism. So I think one of the main things motivating politics 
always, but especially right now, is patriotism. Patriotism is really what caused the riot at the Capitol uh, more than anything else. Trump refers to his followers as patriots. Um, Q, the QAnon guy, he referred to, you know, the people reading his post as patriots. The Q people all refer to themselves as patriots. Um, Trump and the patriots, that's the Q movement. Uh, A couple weeks ago, Trump floated the idea of starting a third party, which he would call, of course, the Patriot Party. Uh, So Trump is leading, or was leading, it's unclear if he's still a viable figure, but don't count him out. Uh, So he's leading a national conservative movement, but the real ideology and like political theology behind it uh, is patriotism. So patriotism is being connected to populism in this way because, you know, Trumpism is sort of shorthand for populism and the national conservatism that is sort of being pushed is trying to be connected to populism by American affairs and other things like that. Um, But what kind of populism is patriotism? Uh, Leftists should care about materialism more than just about anything. So what's the relationship between populist patriotism and materialism? So I think these are both... Uh, it comes down to history. Patriotism and materialism are both ways of thinking about history, approaches to history. So what approach to history is patriotism? So I think a good way of thinking about all of this goes back to one of Nietzsche's earliest essays uh, on history. It's called On the Use and Abuse of History for Life. It's one of the best things Nietzsche ever wrote and in some ways contains his whole philosophy kind of in uh, a kernel. It's one of four essays in his book, Untimely Meditations, and the best one, I think, by far. Um, There's another good one in it called Schopenhauer as Educator. So those two really go together, the essay on history and the essay on education. Uh, His history essay might have been the first thing by him I ever read. I was a history major in college, and I read that essay on history by Nietzsche because a professor recommended it to me because like, my history writing was sort of abstract and like creative and weird because that's sort of how I approach things. And so he could tell that like I was more interested in philosophy than history. Um, and he was right. Um, so that essay made me so interested in philosophy because he explains all the things about the study of history that were so unsatisfying to me. Um, so when a great philosopher basically confirms all the things you hate about education, that's pretty inspiring because you know that he went through all of it and he mastered all of it and he hated all of it. I think that's why people like Einstein too. Um, And Nietzsche hated education for all the right reasons and the reasons that people still hate education today. And a lot of our education system today comes from the kind of German-Prussian model in the 19th century, which was very much about, you know, crushing imagination, uh, very rigid, um, very overly structured, and it wasn't good for imagination or creativity or like flourishing life. Um, and that's what Nietzsche is kind of pushing back against. And that's the same thing that, you know, people are frustrated with about education today. Too much standardized testing, all of that. That all goes back to Germany in the 19th century. And again, Nietzsche anticipated all of the problems with it brilliantly. Um, so, you know, education today and back in Nietzsche's day doesn't speak to the real desire for knowledge and wisdom within us, but rather tries to beat that spark out of us, turning us into, you know, obedient little compliant machines. Nietzsche also covers the problem with education in his um, other essay in Untimely Meditations called Schopenhauer as Educator, where he talks about the example of Schopenhauer in contrast to Hegel. 
as someone who speaks to the, the desire for real education in a way that Hegel's sophisticated, mysterious dialectic didn't really. So Nietzsche always has a critique of the dialectic throughout all of his books because it, you know, it doesn't really satisfy us. It doesn't, the effect of dialectics doesn't last long, he says. Um, and that's true. Like, you know, if you read Hegel or Socrates, uh, one of the dialogues that Plato wrote about Socrates, uh, it's very exciting and stimulating when you're reading it. But, you know, you put the book down and like 10 minutes later, you're not really sure what you just read or like what was going on. Um, and so the reducing education to dialectics, Nietzsche thinks, also kind of impoverishes us because we want more than dialectics. Um, and so I think we can think about Schopenhauer as sort of the undialectical antithesis of Hegel. So Hegel's obviously the most dialectical thinker ever. And Schopenhauer hated Hegel. Um, they were enemies. They taught at uh, the University of Berlin at the same time. And Schopenhauer was very stubborn, so he scheduled his classes at the same time as Hegel's because he wanted you know, to like beat him in competition. And he thought that he was brilliant enough that students would uh, choose his classes over Hegel's. But of course, that's not what happened. Everyone went to Hegel's classes. Nobody went to Schopenhauer's. So he basically retired and just became a crazy, you know, Ted Kaczynski type, just living by himself and writing crazy philosophy. Um, but he was eventually vindicated. Um, towards the end of his life, he started to be, become more well-known. Um, so Nietzsche really stands, I guess we can say, Schopenhauer in that essay. He says at one point, as soon as I read a word of Schopenhauer's, I knew that I had to read everything that he ever wrote because he could tell that Schopenhauer got closer to the truth than anyone else. And that's how a lot of people feel about Nietzsche too. That like, that's how I felt about him. Like as soon as I read basically like a couple sentences of Nietzsche, I was like, oh, okay, I have to read everything that he wrote because he will bring me closer to the truth than anyone else has. Uh, and so I think Nietzsche sees education as kind of like carrying that torch, um, this spark that Schopenhauer had, that Nietzsche had, and then he tries to like pass on. And so it's, so education for him is more about that than about, um, you know, depositing information in people's heads and making them compliant and so on. Um, so back to the history essay, Nietzsche makes this important distinction between three approaches to history, uh, the antique approach, the monumental approach, and the critical approach. And his aim is to try to find a way of thinking about history that can serve life. Life is always his main concern because he's worried that life is in decline in the modern world. Um, well, he's, you know, going back to Socrates, he thinks that's when the decline started and then it accelerated with Jesus and, you know, various other things in Christianity. Um, but he thinks that it's really coming to a crisis point in the modern world. And he identifies all kinds of uh, causes of it, but education is a big one. Um, and especially the way that historical education sort of sets the tone for all education. So he calls it historical consciousness, a kind of thinking, a kind of um, general attitude that focuses on history too much. And he thinks that if we focus on the past too much, then we can't imagine a future. Our heads are going to be too full of the past and that's not good. So, you know, it's kind of this inversion of that old line that those who don't study the past are doomed to repeat it. Nietzsche thinks that if you study the past too much, then you're just going to repeat it because that's all that's going to be in your head. So you have to have a kind of unconsciousness, a kind of blindness almost to certain things. If you're too conscious, then you can't really do anything. 
So if you're pure consciousness, then you're not really alive. So life isn't just about consciousness. Like life is mostly about unconsciousness, right? Like most of what's going on in our minds is below the surface. Uh, So the three approaches to history that he identifies again are uh, the antique approach, the monumental approach, and critical. So the antique approach to history, antiquarian he calls it, is the approach to history of, you know, dry, harmless, boring scholars. It views history as a settled matter, a warehouse of curiosities from a bygone time. Like you can just like, you know, poke around history and find some interesting stuff. So it's harmless, ineffectual, um, but it leaves young men bored. So, you know, why would young men care about antiques? Um, And if they do, then it's making them prematurely old. So he thinks history and education, philosophy, all of that, should, to some extent, be inspiring. Um, So monumental history, as opposed to antique history, can serve, quote, an active and striving person. And that's very important for Nietzsche, that we have to be active and we have to strive towards something, towards some larger goal, towards transcending ourselves, towards, you know, the creation of great art, great works, and so on. And so because the monumental approach to history serves an active and striving person, it's pretty clear that that's the best approach to history that Nietzsche finds, although he does find some problems with it. Uh, He warns that if monumental history, history as an inspiring monument, becomes the predominant type, then that can change history into some kind of mythic poetic fiction that borders on religion, and that's not good either. Um, Monumental history also attracts enthusiastic people, and Nietzsche hates enthusiasm. He thinks enthusiasm is a source of much stupidity. Uh, And so this is a common line that Nietzsche tries to find between the kind of greatness and monumentalism uh, on the one hand, but also that doesn't become stupid. So it's easy for greatness and monumentalism, which is really at the root of patriotism and nationalism, to become stupid. And I think that's pretty obvious if you take a look at Trump and most of his supporters and the people who rioted at the Capitol. uh, A lot of stupidity happening there. And Nietzsche doesn't think that's good. So Nietzsche does praise power and strength and warrior virtues and so on. But he also says that history would be, quote, altogether too stupid of a thing if it didn't have weakness and complexity within it. So strength is good, uh, but not if it deceives us too much. And so monumental history is good, but not if it's totally based on fiction. Um, Because again, that brings us too close to religion. And one of Nietzsche's main concerns for all of his philosophy, is to oppose the influence that religion has had on humanity. In his book, The Antichrist, he calls it the one immortal blemish on mankind. Um, So he's an enemy of religion, and monumental history can sometimes become too close to a religion. And I think patriotism is basically the religion or the national theology of uh, America, of American nationalism. So he's opposed to those aspects of monumental history, but he's also an enemy of the kind of dry, scholastic, antique approach to history and of the critical approach to history, which I haven't talked about yet, because that's too close to Marxism and historical materialism. So he wants to try to synthesize between monumental and critical approaches, because the monumental approach is inspiring and lifts us up and so on and can serve life very well. Um, And a critical approach cuts down myths and religious tendencies. So he wants the kind of approach to history that is grounded and critical so that it doesn't, so that history doesn't become this patriotic nationalist, you know, 
mythological religion. That's not good. Um, he wants to be more grounded and critical than that, but not so grounded and critical that it destroys life. That it, you know, that old T.S. Eliot line about must we murder to dissect. Uh, so he wants history and life to be understood, but not murdered. So critical history, which is a thinly veiled reference to the Marxist science of historical materialism, which was very ascendant when Nietzsche was writing this. I think he wrote this essay in like the mid 1870s. Um, and so, you know, a lot of Nietzsche's work is responding to Marx, to historical materialism, which is the study of history as class conflict um, between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Uh, he doesn't really mention Marx by name too often, if ever, really, maybe like once or twice here or there. Um, but it's clear that that's in the background of just about everything Nietzsche is doing. So he's trying to create an alternative philosophy to that because Nietzsche did not like socialism. He did not like the masses. He thought that aristocracy was good and so on. Um, so critical history, Nietzsche defines as being for the suffering person in need of emancipation. So monumental history is for the active striving person. And that's, that's good for Nietzsche. Uh, and critical history is for the suffering person in need of emancipation. And that's not good for Nietzsche. Uh, so, you know, who needs emancipation? Who suffers the most? The masses, the generalized mass of people. And that's, you know, really who Marx was writing for to try to liberate and emancipate the mass of people, the proletariat. So what does Nietzsche say about the masses? Nothing good. Uh, you know, he has critical comments about the masses in all of his works, basically. But in this essay, he says, quote, the masses seem to me to deserve notice in three respects only. First, as faded copies of great men produced on poor paper with worn out plates. Then as a force of resistance to great men. Finally, as instruments in the hands of great men. For the rest, let the devil and statistics take them. Okay. So it's pretty clear which approach to history he prefers. It's the monumental approach. He does say that his sort of ideal person should utilize all three of these approaches in a way that will maximize the expansion and ascension of life. Um, and even antique history plays its role here. So it is about synthesizing all of these different approaches. Um, and I think it's interesting to note that last summer, we, in a real way, saw the conflict play out between the monumental and the critical approaches to history. Um, during all the protests and the riots that went on, people were tearing down monuments, literally. That was sort of applied critical history happening in real time, taking the scalpel to the past, destroying myths. Uh, and the reaction against that, the people who thought that was bad, uh, people saying we need our monuments to be preserved, we need our myths, uh, those were patriots, of course. So patriots support the monuments, the people who rioted at the Capitol, they were all opposing the tearing down of monuments, of course, <coughs> excuse me. Um, and the left wanted to destroy the myths and the monuments and replace it with a more factual approach to history. And so I think this is another way in which Nietzsche's philosophy can be useful because he maintains that facts don't really exist, only interpretations, and that truth itself is an illusion. The will to truth of the scientist is no different than the will to truth of the priest. So Nietzsche would say that even, you know, someone like Marx who tried to establish a science, a scientific materialist theory of history um, was still operating from a religious impulse. So towards the end of his essay on history, Nietzsche identifies the problem. 
He says, quote, excess of history has attacked life's plastic forces, powers. It no longer knows how to employ life, uh, sorry, how to employ the past as a nourishing food. So history has become something that reduces and crushes life. And so he's saying that the past has to be used for the present as a nourishing food, something that can sustain us and motivate us and give us a sense of context and meaning. And he thinks that the way that we think about history now does not do that. So the past has to be used in a certain way. And so this is why he recommends what he calls unhistorical consciousness, which he calls the art and power of forgetting and of enclosing within a bounded horizon. So this idea of limits and horizons and boundaries is very important for Nietzsche throughout his whole philosophy. He thinks that the kind of historical consciousness of the modern mind is too open and we're drowning in it. And it's not something that we can use, but rather something that uses us. So we have to use the past rather than having the past use us, basically. Uh, And this is also a critique of Hegel's philosophy of history, where, you know, world spirits was sort of using great figures as puppets. So for Hegel, even great figures like Napoleon or people like that are just puppets of, you know, history itself acting upon us. And Nietzsche hates that. He thinks history should be something that we wield ourselves, that we use, rather than history being something that guides us around. And here, Nietzsche gets pretty close to Marx because Marx wants history's power uh, to be understood. So that's what historical materialism is. It's understanding history as class conflict and as philosophy, as trying to change the world. Um, And so again, both Marx and Nietzsche want us to use history more actively. Marx wants us to use history uh, from a critical scientific perspective more. And Nietzsche recommends more of a monumental, um, I guess, patriotic or national, nationalistic approach. Although Nietzsche would think that patriotism and nationalism are pretty stupid for the most part. So critical history, the most conscious form of history, taking a scalpel to the past, also has a place for Nietzsche. And Nietzsche did that a lot in all of his work, especially with respect to the history of Christianity and the history of morality. He, you know... Um, dissected that more than anyone ever had. But while Marx used critical history, the scalpel of a scientific approach to life, he used it not to overturn morality, but to provide a way of understanding why revolution should happen. Nietzsche, on the other hand, wants to show why revolution is bad. So Marx and Nietzsche, again, both want to use the past. They want to use history. Marx wants to use it to make revolution happen. And Nietzsche wants to use it to make sure revolution doesn't happen. That's the difference. So Nietzsche wants to show, again, why revolution is bad. He thinks, you know, with revolution, the masses get on top, and that's not good for him. He thinks the masses are terrible. He views Christianity and the slave revolt in morals, where, you know, good and bad sort of changed meanings. So before what he calls the slave revolt in morals, uh, strength, power, honor, warrior virtues were considered good. Um, But then with Christianity, you know, pity, meekness, weakness, all of these sort of bitch virtues that Jesus embodied uh, come out on top. So, you know, Jesus allowing himself to be killed, saying, you know, if you get smacked, turn the other cheek so they can hit you again. All of that for Nietzsche is very clearly not what morality should be or used to be before Christianity. 
And so he views revolution as that, as sort of bad things getting on top. So Marx doesn't really see the masses as, as having taken that much power. So Nietzsche, again, thinks that the masses have uh, been winning, basically. And Marx doesn't. Marx thinks that the masses have been beaten down by the bourgeoisie for a long time. Before it was the bourgeoisie, it was you know the nobles of the feudal aristocratic system, and then it was ancient slavery and so on. Um, So it's really two different approaches. Marx thinks that the smaller class, the ruling class, have always had power and still have power, and he wants to try to explain how that comes to be and why it should end. Nietzsche thinks that the lower classes have been in a process of getting power away from the strong ever since Socrates and Christianity, but especially in the modern era with Rousseau, the Enlightenment, the French Revolution, and so on. Uh, Even science itself for Nietzsche is just another form of the will to truth that motivates Christianity and the philosophy of Socrates. And so it's just another form of the negation of reality, trying to tear down what exists. And so critical history, historical materialism is the science of history. And so it has the same kind of religious, revolutionary, socialist impulses as Christianity. Uh, And so for Nietzsche, socialism and Christianity and democracy, feminism, all of those things, are basically the same. And it's all about the resentment of the masses, the lower group of people, uh, getting their warped, shitty values on top. And he thinks that's bad. And Marx, of course, would say that's good. Um, So Nietzsche thinks that what exists in the world, the way the world has always sort of been, with the powerful on top and the weak on the bottom, is good and should be affirmed and reinforced. And so this goes along with his idea of the eternal return, uh, return of the same, that the same circumstances just keep repeating forever, and so all we can do is embrace them. So resentment for Nietzsche comes from not understanding this doctrine of the eternal return, that nothing really can change. So is that actually the case, that nothing can change? Or is that just what Nietzsche wants to believe to kind of use as a basis for his counter-revolutionary philosophy? Um, Nietzsche also calls himself a yes-saying spirit. He says yes to everything. Um, whereas Marx is more of a critical spirit, right? Marx's fav- uh, the famous line about you know, describing his approach as being the ruthless criticism of everything that exists. So he tries to negate and destroy everything because he thinks it's all wrong. Um, so for Nietzsche, changing anything, the desire to change something, is a sign of weakness and that instead we should just affirm and embrace what exists because what exists is life itself and life itself for Nietzsche is power and power can't really be changed. So trying to change power, uh, doesn't really make sense to him. And so this is why he says that the critical approach to history serves the suffering person in need of emancipation, emancipation from the current state of affairs that causes his suffering. Um, and so if the current state of affairs cause you suffering, then for Nietzsche, you should embrace your suffering. And so for him, that's what great men, the ubermensch, aristocrats of the spirit, whatever you want to call them, um, that's what they do. They realize that suffering is part of life, but they use that. They incorporate that into their character, and that helps them create art and you know become great men in whatever way that they want. Um, so Nietzsche doesn't think that suffering can be solved or should be solved, you know. Nietzsche's famous line about that which does not kill you makes you stronger. 
We have to accept suffering as just part of life. Um, and so, you know, he's probably saying this because the people who suffer the most are the mass of people, the proletariat. And so his message is basically like, if you're suffering, you deserve it and just accept it. So it's a way of getting people to, you know, affirm and embrace the status quo. And so Nietzsche, again, doesn't think that suffering can be solved by changing historical circumstances in the way that Marx does. He thinks that suffering is part of existence itself and that all we can do is embrace it and say yes to it. And this is what the ancient Greeks understood. Um, This was the subject of Nietzsche's first book, The Birth of Tragedy, um, which is a very weird book that like ruined his career. It was the first book he wrote and, you know, Nietzsche was a young genius and everyone was very excited for his first book, but it was so fucking weird that it kind of like ruined everything for him, like before his career even got, got started, which I think is pretty funny. Um, so the ancient Greeks had this kind of tragic wisdom that Nietzsche thought was the highest form of knowledge that any people had achieved. And so this form of wisdom is, is sometimes referred to as the wisdom of the Silenus. The Silenus was like a um, satyr, like a half man, half animal character who was known for being very wise. Um, and his wisdom was that the best thing for men is to never be born. But since that's impossible, the next best thing is to die immediately. So that was considered like the highest <laughs> wisdom of the ancient Greeks. And so that has nothing to do with like emancipation from suffering or changing the world or any of that shit. And Nietzsche thinks that that is the correct line to have. Um, and so the ancient Greeks would never think in terms of emancipation from suffering. That would be laughable to them. So I think patriotism, bringing it back around, can be understood as affirmation and embracing and having a love for America, of American nationalism and our history and everything that entails, good and bad, right? Because that's just who we are. And this is what Trump's movement was all about, rejecting the kind of liberal shame of American national history, excuse me, and embracing everything that America has been, warts and all. So patriotism is connected to the monumental view of history because there's nothing critical about it and it serves the active striving person, but striving and active for affirmation of what exists. Patriots aren't trying to achieve anything really other than maintaining the status quo. So it's a, so even like, you know, the American revolution itself, sort of our starting point for thinking about patriots and and patriotism uh, they weren't really trying to create anything new. They just wanted their rights as Englishmen. The American Revolution was because happened because uh, we weren't getting our rights as Englishmen. So we, we just wanted that. It wasn't like this radical kind of break with history necessarily. It was kind of like seeking for a continuation of history. So patriotism is a kind of revolutionary striving and active energy as we saw at the Capitol raid, but in service of merely affirming the mythology of the nation. And so that's what the thing at the Capitol was about. It was about affirming our national mythology, which they all thought and think is being attacked by liberals. Um, And so in this way, patriotism, I think, is counter-revolutionary. It's how the bourgeois mind thinks of revolution and of history. It's revolutionary energy in service of keeping things the same, and even of changing them back to how they used to be before too much critical thinking and historical awareness crept in. So, you know, this is make America great again, 
a kind of golden past that uh, used to exist and that we have to try to return to, right? So patriotism, like monumentalism, is trying to establish horizons, a national mythology that can give us meaning. And this is opposed to the critical or materialist view of history, which breaks everything open and tries to unlock the secret mechanism of history, which for Marxists is historical materialism, class struggle, and class conflict. So this Marxist view of history does serve an active striving person, but in service of changing the status quo rather than affirming it and embracing it. So this brings us to the two sort of competing approaches to history in America today, something that's often called critical race theory, uh, connected to the 1619 project of the New York Times, which you're probably familiar with. Um, And so that seeks to change our perspective of American history from the founding mythology of 1776, which is connected to patriotism, to the origin of slavery in America in 1619. Um, And so, of course, the 1619 project is not popular. Um, It it embodies the kind of worst aspects of liberal bullshit, you know, bourgeois, liberalism, whatever you want to call it. New York Times is not like a real radical institution, of course. Um, and that's been well established. I think there's been plenty of criticism of the 1619 Project. But at the same time, it is more materialist than the patriotic monumentalist view, which is expressed in President Trump's 1776 Commission. Uh, which was created in collaboration with the Claremont Institute and their various publications like American Greatness and so on. So the 1776 Commission was created sort of uh, in reaction to the 1619 Project as a sort of competing patriotic, monumentalist, nationalist uh, approach to history. So I think the problem is the 1619 Project view is not really inspiring to most people. In fact, it turns most people off. Um, And the 1619 Project in particular failed because it has a lot of historical inaccuracies. I think it's gotten in trouble for that. And its whole thing is supposed to be very factual. So it fails on its own terms even uh, because there's no positive story to it. People reject it because it feels like they're being blamed. People like Trump because he isn't ashamed of America and everything it stands for. Uh, I saw some video of a QAnon meeting the other day. And one of the things they said was that they thank God that they had a president like Trump who is not ashamed of America. So Trump just affirms and embraces everything, right? So Trump would never apologize for anything in American history or for anything he has personally done, famously. That's a big part of his success, I think. That's one reason that people like him. He affirms and embraces everything, even the bad stuff, especially the bad stuff. Because what has to be affirmed and embraced really isn't good stuff because good stuff, you know, is just good and that's it. Um, What has to be affirmed and embraced is precisely the bad stuff. And this is one of Nietzsche's points too. Um, So in that way, he's very Nietzschean and his patriotic movement is unhistorical and monumentalist in the way that Nietzsche approves of. He would disapprove, of course, of how far into fantasy it's gone. So the question is how to find an unhistorical consciousness that is at the same time grounded and materialist. So I think that's sort of the task for um, our thinking right now. Um, Okay, well, that's about enough for today. Uh, Bye-bye.